So I want to minister tonight for a little bit through a message I'm calling Committed to the Grace of God. Those words, committed to the grace of God, come out of Acts chapter 14 and verse 26, and it reads this way. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Unless you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, you would never know who the they are that they're referring to in this verse. Three times the pronoun plural they is used. It says they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. So let's pull back the curtain and find out who they are referring to. They are none other than the Apostle Barnabas and the Apostle Paul, working together on a missionary journey, dispensing the gospel of grace everywhere they went. And it sounds to me like they're having quite a time. But if you read Acts chapter 14, verse 26, as a standalone verse with absolutely no context, then it will take on the flavor and the appearance that everything went well on this missionary journey for Paul and Barnabas. After all, they sailed. After all, they were committed to the grace of God. After all, they had finished the assignment that the Holy Spirit had put them on. It sounds like it went well to me. We're in verse 26 of Acts chapter 14. But did you know that just seven verses before this, verse 19, that while on this missionary journey, the Jews stoned the Apostle Paul and dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. Now I've got to ask a question. Why do you think they did this to Paul? I mean, here's Paul and Barnabas. They come into this city and they're preaching the gospel and they're healing people. They're seeing miracles take place and the Jews' response was, let's stone him and drag him outside of the city. And the Bible says they did it thinking he was dead. I'll tell you why they did this. It's because his preaching of the true gospel, the gospel of grace, did not fit into their religious paradigm. They had a certain way God should be presented. And this was so radically different that they said, this cannot be God. So let's do away with this man. As they pummeled the Apostle Paul with stones, he was bruised, he was broken, he had deep lacerations, and I know his heavy breathing went to shallow breathing, and eventually he stopped breathing, just like our Savior Jesus did on the cross. Friends, I want to tell you something. Don't think it strange. Don't think it unusual whenever you face hardships and trials and persecutions and different issues of life. And don't think it strange when you're mistreated for the sake of the gospel of grace. The more extravagant you become with this message, the more you're going to find that persecution comes. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just trying to be real, okay? It just comes. But the Bible tells us that what happened was Paul's converts gathered around him outside of the city. It doesn't even say they prayed. doesn't say they sung. The Bible just says they gathered around him and Paul woke up. And Paul had the audacity to walk back into the same city that just stoned him. And the Bible says there he spent the night and left the next morning. Now see, we wouldn't normally think that way, would we? I mean, if someone just got through stoning me, I'd be like, I ain't going back in there. And you know what? There were times when the Holy Spirit led them out of situations. 
What I'm getting at is there are issues that are going to come our way, absolutely. This is why it's so important to be in touch with the Holy Spirit. What do you want me to do in this situation? And the Holy Spirit would have no doubt said, Paul, I just want you to go into the city and get a good night's rest because tomorrow you've got a big journey ahead of you. And that's exactly what he did. Now, I thought the Apostle Paul was either really stupid or he was really committed. I think I'm going to stay with the scriptures. The scripture says in verse 26 that he was committed to the grace of God. That's the way the Apostle Paul walked through life. So it is with this ministry, as we are nearing the end of this year, the close of 2017, I look back and I go, man, every single message we preached out of this church this past year, if you were just to go back and listen to them, you would come to the conclusion, we have been committed to the grace of God. Amen? We live in a world whereby many people are committed to the grace of God. Now listen to this next word, unless. See, they draw a line. And they say, I'm committed up to this point. It's an imaginary line. They don't even know where the line's at. They're committed to the grace of God unless, unless what? Unless hardship knocks. Well, I'm going to tell you in advance, hardship is going to knock. Hardship is going to come. And we can still stay committed to this gospel of grace because it is the only message that sets us free. It's the only message that gives us hope in the midst of a storm. It is the only hope we've got. People are committed to the grace of God unless offense creeps in. I'm going to tell you again in advance, offense will creep in. But I want to encourage you to stay committed to the grace of God. People are committed to the grace of God unless persecution arises. Stay committed to the grace of God. There's nothing to retreat back to. When you come into this gospel of grace, you come to the realization there is nothing to go back to. What would we go back to? People are committed sometimes until trials come. Trials are going to come. But you know one thing I have found? Trials go too. Temptation, situations, they come and they go. Friends, stay committed to the grace of God. There's a man in the Bible called Nehemiah. And his friends, his brothers came and they told him that the walls of Jerusalem laid in ruins and the city had been burned. Do you know what his response was? The Bible says he wept for many days. The Bible says he prayed. The Bible says he fasted. See, Jerusalem is the city of peace. That's what it's called, the city of peace. And that is the journey that I think this ministry is really on. It's a journey to show people that we can live in peace, that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. Yes, opposition will come. Nehemiah faced it. But you know what? This ministry and Grace Ministries, the purpose of them is to rebuild in the hearts of the believers the confidence that God is at peace with you. God is at peace with you. Jesus said these words in John 14, 27 from the NIV Bible. It says this, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. We don't have another peace. We have Jesus' peace. I love how it's worded, though, in the New Living Translation. It says this, I am leaving with you a gift. I like it when you look at peace as a gift. It's a gift of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I am leaving with you a gift. And he says, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. 
Jesus said it's a gift that the world cannot give. But I'm going to tell you something else too. It's also a gift that the world can't take away. Nothing can take away your peace. You can give it up for the moment, but peace is really on the inside of us. It's only when the issues of life begin to crowd in like that, that peace seems to get pushed back like that. But our peace, he said, I give it to you and I leave it with you. I don't take it. You can't get rid of it. It's really there. So we're walking through things right now. I mean, even at Christmas time, Christmas time should be a time of year where we just go, Daddy, if I just need a break from some things, surely it would be this time of year. But I know every single one of you are facing certain things in life. And you know what? Christmas is not exempt. But let's default back to his words. He said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. I don't give you a peace like the world can give you. It is a gift from my father. And he says, you will always have it. The world cannot give this kind of peace. Only Jesus is qualified to give this kind of peace. The Bible calls him the Prince of Peace. He came 2,000 years ago, first to the cradle and then to the cross. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, we find these words. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that we're justified, let this ring in your heart tonight, it means declared righteous. Dekaio, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And he says, therefore, since we have been justified, declared innocent, declared righteous through faith, he says, we have peace with God. God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I love that. Therefore, well, if you would have read chapter four, you would see what the therefore is. Therefore, chapter four is all about declaring our justification, that we're declared justified apart from works, apart from the law. He gets through telling you all about that in chapter three and chapter four, so that when he steps over into chapter five, he can come into it with this triumphant entry saying, since you have been justified by faith, you're going to get the peace. My daddy's going to give you the peace that you've been searching for, that you've been looking for. It doesn't have to come at Christmas. It came in August for me. Peace can be ours. Peace is ours. And then he continues and he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Now, listen, if there were some scriptures I'd like to blacken out in the Bible, that'd be one of them. I'm just being honest. We also, what, 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 what'd you say here? We also glory in our sufferings? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now, I love this because it says, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint us. Hope is always on time. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Nehemiah experienced heavy and relentless opposition. He had death threats, but his love for Jerusalem, his love for the city of peace triumphed over fear. Love always triumphs over fear. The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fears. There are anemic definitions and altitudes of commitment. But I've come by tonight to remind the body of Christ that our Jesus's commitment to thoroughly save us from our sins went beyond unless. He didn't draw any imaginary lines. His commitment to us went beyond unless this happens, Daddy. 
Unless that happens, unless you make me go to the garden, Daddy, unless you make me go to the cross, he knew the cost. The Bible says he was slain before the foundation of the earth was laid. There were no imaginary lines by Jesus. He made us a city of peace through a gift. Jesus was not just committed unless our Jesus was committed unto, unto death, even the death on the cross. We find this truth in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let me stop here for just a second. I love this because this personalizes the relationship more than just this vertical relationship with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And he says, in your relationships with one another. Now listen, this is so powerful. This is the way we are to have relationships with one another. He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The word mindset literally means have the same way of thinking. The way a person interacts in relationships will be determined literally by what he is feeding upon, what he is meditating upon. You meditate upon Christ, Christ is going to manifest. You meditate upon the goodness of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord is going to manifest. You meditate upon mercy, mercy will manifest. You meditate upon compassion, compassion will manifest. Love will manifest. When it says have the same mindset, it literally means have the same approach as Jesus. How does he approach situations? He approached every situation full of faith, full of love. And that's the way we are to approach every situation, full of faith, full of love. When it says to have the same mindset, it literally means to have the same attitude. Now that one is a little more challenging because our attitudes aren't always kind of where they're supposed to be. But as we meditate upon the fact that God has declared us righteous in his eyes, that he has made us a city of peace. I heard my wife say earlier that we are forever forgiven. What a wonderful, wonderful truth to know that we are forever forgiven. Not just forgiven up till. We are forgiven unto because Jesus is the one who went to the cross and forgave us. He made us a city of peace, the Bible says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Be willing to wash another man's feet. Be willing to put another person before you. God is wanting us to approach him with this biblical hope, this biblical hope of, yes, I believe there's a confident expectation in this. Yes, I believe that you have everything daddy planned that's good for me that I don't have to fear, that I don't have to walk in judgment, that I don't have to walk in condemnation. Yes, I believe that, Daddy. And then it says, Jesus being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That Jesus being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. When did he do that? He did that 2,000 years ago when Jesus was laid in a manger. Two weeks ago, I put something on my Facebook page encouraging the people who follow me to give into two other ministries. Some of you may have seen that. I have two friends, Paul White and Peter Swart, and I put their faces on there. And I know December for ministers is a lean month, especially if you're a minister who is an itinerant minister, ministers that go on the road and preach the gospel. It's a tough month for them because most pastors won't give up their pulpits in December. And we have so many other things competing for our finances in December, all of our gifts and all of our giving. And I totally get it. 
And so I posted something on there encouraging people to give. And what I really got blessed by is one of our listeners from another country wrote a comment on there and she simply said this. She said, wow, this is what pure grace looks like. One minister encouraging everybody else to give into other ministries. It's what Jesus was doing right here. He took off God, if you will. Yes, he was God robed in flesh, but he laid down all that power and all that ability when he came to earth as a baby and everything he did, he relied totally upon the father for. I mean, that's an amazing thing that you would lay that down. We want to take so much stuff with us, but he laid it down so that he could come and he could grow in wisdom and and in stature and in grace. But he was so reliant always upon the Father. And the Bible says this, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, I love this, and became obedient, not unless, but he became obedient, unto death, even the death of the cross. When you think about obedience, it's a word that most people don't like to hear. The word obey is a verb and it speaks of an action. But the word obedient is not a verb, it is an adjective and it speaks of an attitude. That's a big difference because when you think of obeying, you're thinking about this checklist of everything that you have to do I've obeyed this, I've obeyed that. But that was not the way Jesus came to earth. He had an obedient heart. It wasn't about, Daddy, I did all this stuff for you today. And that's where sometimes the body of Christ gets stuck, is we're always like, oh, Father, I did this. I prayed for so many minutes, and I read so many chapters. And it's like this checklist of things that we keep taking off. To obey is a verb. Obedient is an adjective, and it speaks more of an attitude. Now, here is the simplest definition of an adjective. It is a word that describes or clarifies a noun. It doesn't stand alone. It clarifies or it draws attention to the noun itself. It gives us information like the object size or the shape or the color or the origin or the material. When we look at these two words together, we see the words abundant mercy. Mercy is a noun. Abundant is an adjective because it looks at mercy and it goes, look at the size of mercy. It's abundant. Look at the size. It's like Jesus wanting to point to the Father, and it's like the Father wanting to point to Jesus. So you got the adjective working with the noun. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let's look at the next one. Only Son. You know which one's the noun? Son, isn't it? That leaves only as the adjective, doesn't it? It's pointing to the Son. It's clarifying that He's not one of many. He's not just a spare Son. He is the only Son And we see this truth in John chapter 3 and verse 16 where it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one 
here it is, an only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In fact, those words eternal life, you see the adjective eternal, and you see life as the noun. It's pointing to tell you this is how powerful the life you have is. It's an eternal life. And then we have obedient heart. And that's what Jesus had. Jesus came on a mission with an obedient heart to save us. And the Bible says this, it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This word obedient, it comes from the Greek word hupekaos. And I love this because we often associate obedient with, again, a checklist of things to do. But obedient literally means attentively listening or submissive. And that's what Jesus was always about. He was attentively listening to the Father. The Bible says he didn't do anything, didn't say anything. You hear the Father say or do. He was attentively listening. That's the kind of life he wants you and I to live, not just at Christmas, but every day of the year. He wants us just to attentively listen. Because I'll tell you what, it'd be in that time that he'll speak to your heart and he's going to whisper things and truths into your heart that are going to keep setting you free and things that you could never know apart from that Holy Spirit whispering into your heart. The word obedient speaks of relationship, not rules. Relationship with the Father, relationship with Jesus, relationship with the Holy Spirit. You see, friends, it's not that Jesus was obedient or submissive to death itself or submissive and obedient to the cross itself, what Jesus was submissive to and what he was obedient to was the Father. It was the Father. If the cross would have called him and the Father would have said no, he said no to the cross. He was attentively listening to the Father. If death would have called him and the Father said no, he'd have said no. I'm not dying for nothing. I'm listening to my Father. I want to encourage you this year as we're about to turn the page on 2018 to attentively listen to the Father. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Take time to meditate and just listen. Don't try to conquer your whole Bible. Meditate and listen. Take one scripture and ruminate that scripture. Meditate on that scripture and watch it come alive. Watch the Father begin to speak to you through that scripture. And the Bible says... And being found in fashion as a man, again, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, you say, wait a minute, Mark. This is Christmas. <laughs> you just walked us right by the cradle and took us right to the cross. Well, isn't that what Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7? He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, who do you suppose that great light is? Who do you think was walking in darkness? It was you and it was me. He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. We sang about that joy earlier tonight. The first song was joy to the world. The Lord has come. Praise God. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke. 
so important to understand that, that God has shattered the yoke, the yoke that bound us at one time. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, it's for freedom that we have been set free. We don't have to wear a yoke. The only way we can put a yoke back on us is to go back under the law, trying to obey every single thing on the list, just have an obedient heart, a heart that's attentively listening for the Father, okay? He says, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar. The bar is the weight, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And then we roll into some powerful scriptures. This is what Isaiah saw. He said, for unto us a child is born. That is the cradle. Unto us a son is given. That's the cross. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not that he just gave his only begotten baby. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now, I've seen this before in the Word, and I believe that government they speak of is a government of grace. I really believe that. And it says, and he will be called, look at all these wonderful names, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. Do you know the Apostle Paul opened every single one of his letters? You go back and look at them. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He opened every single letter with grace and peace. And I believe he was reaching all the way back even into these scriptures and going, I see grace in these scriptures. I see peace in these scriptures. I see your name is called peace. And I'm going to tell the people every time I write a letter, grace and peace unto you. Because that is your government, Jesus. Your government is a government of grace and your government is a government of peace. And every letter I write, I'm going to begin with those words, grace and peace unto you. And he says, of this there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. It's the same righteousness that Romans 5.1 just got through talking about. Therefore, having been justified, that's declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So he says here, it's going to be established and upheld with justice and righteousness. I'm going to tell you something, Papa. The only reason you don't fall apart is because of his justice and his righteousness. The only reason we don't all fall apart, I'm spiritually speaking here, is because of his justice and his righteousness. Nothing can penetrate either one of those things. You have been sealed until the day of redemption. Nothing can get in there. Nothing can get out of there. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit with justice and righteousness. From that time on, he says, I love these words, 
and forever. You know, I'm glad he threw that in there because I mean, like, I don't know. I just said from that time on, where's that imaginary line? I'm looking for that line. Have I crossed the line? No. I will tell you something. There's no line you can cross. He says here, it is a government that never ends. It goes on forever, which tells me that this righteousness and this peace and this government of grace are irrevocable gifts of God. Who do they come from? They come from a good, good father. We call him daddy. Now, the Hebrew word for government is misra. It is only found twice in the entire Bible, once in that sixth verse of Isaiah 9 and once in the seventh verse of chapter 9, and it speaks of the government being on his shoulders. Remember that? And it speaks of a government without end. I believe the government refers to the government of grace and peace, but let's let the scriptures speak for themselves. The Hebrew word for our English word government, misra. Misra comes from the Hebrew root word for power. I love this. In other words, what I'm saying is if you take that word government and you look at the Hebrew word behind that, I have a love affair for the Hebrew and the Greek because it shows me things. It keeps pulling the covers off of Jesus in the Old Testament. But the reason I love the Hebrew is it keeps pulling off the covers. And in the New Testament, it keeps reminding me that the veil has already been torn. Jesus has come through. So I love this. So when we take that English word government, there's a word behind that in Hebrew called misra. And the root word for misra is sarah, sarah, which means to set in order. I love that. Now, if you think about this, God is setting a government in place, a government, I believe, of grace. He is a God of order, the Bible says, and he has set it in order. So when we look at this word government and we look at the word behind that, the root word where it comes from, it is just sarah, and it literally means power. It means the power to live a sinless life. It means the power to live forever. It means the power to triumph over devils and demons. It's the power to be whole. It's the power to be healed. It's the power to be merciful. It's the power to love and the power to be gracious and kind. And he says, this is the kind of power that I'm going to set in order. Sarah. Sarah is the Hebrew word for government, and it contains these three letters. Sin, resh, and hey. Now that first one kind of freaks you out from right to left because you see the word sin. It has nothing to do with sin. It is just the Hebrew letter sin. It's pronounced more like sin. This is where this Sarah comes from. Sin, resh, and hey. Sin looks like the English letter W, but it's like in fancy calligraphy. But the sin is the most symmetrical of all Hebrew letters. Here's what it represents. It represents fire. It's like fire reaching up to the sky. Sin represents fire. Now, what I love about this letter here is that the sin is made from using four yuds. Yud is the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet and three vobs, which is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And here's the cool thing about this, is every one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet carry a numerical value. And so when we look at four yuds and three vobs, here's what it amounts to. Four yuds times 10 is 40, three vobs times six is 18. How do we get the 10 and the six? Because the yud is the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the vav is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet and they carry those as numerical codes. 
So when we look at those together, we have a total of 58. Now, why is that so important? This is what God is hiding in this word, Sarah, that has the sin, the resh, the hay in there. He's hiding these kind of things in there. Why is that important? Because 58 is also the numerical value for the word grace, which in Hebrew is translated as chen, chen, grace, Hebrew numerical values. See, the chen, it is made from two letters, chet, which is the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and nun, which is the 14th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the nun has a numerical value of 50, the chet has a numerical value of eight, and together they form the total of 58. So very, very cool how God just kind of collectively puts this together. The first time we encounter the word grace, that word chen in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. The Bible says, but Noah found grace, that is the Hebrew word chen, C-H-E-N, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What I think is neat about this is if you take the two Hebrew letters that make up the word grace, they are the letters chet and nun, and if you take the letters that make up the name Noah, they are the same exact letters in reverse order. Same exact letters. Chet and Noah's name literally means rest. Noah's name means rest. The same letters in reverse order. God hid grace in rest, and he hid rest in grace. Noah's name translates as rest. Therefore, when you read Noah's name from right to left, it translates just how his name reads, rest. And when you look at Noah's name from left to right, it reads grace. Rest and grace are designed to be together. When you find grace, when you really find grace, I'm going to tell you, for the first time in your spiritual life, you'll find that you have found rest. And when you find this kind of rest, you're going to find that grace just keeps manifesting. It just keeps manifesting. It keeps showing up in every dimension, in your eyes, in the Word, in the way you treat people. When a believer finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, it means that we are in harmony with the gospel. Everything is in its right place. With everything in its right place, we discover we have an obedient heart that's set apart from laws and rules and regulations and theories. We discover the power of grace working through the government that's not upon our shoulders. The government was upon Jesus' shoulders. And you know what? Whatever he has, we are inside Christ. The government's on our big brother's shoulders. The first Hebrew letter for the root word government is sin, and it signifies fire, or it signifies flames. And then we have resh. I don't have time to get into teaching all of these, but resh, remember, means authority or power. That is the second letter of sarah. It means authority or power. And then we simply have he, which literally translates as, come on, somebody help me out here, grace. That's exactly right. So we have sin, Resh hay, it literally means the flame of authority through grace. You see, friends, we were under a yoke of slavery before Jesus came, but the scriptures prophesied that a government was coming and it would no longer allow us to search for our identity through stone tablets. We would search for our identity now through flesh and blood because the Bible says the government was going to be upon top of his shoulders, upon top of his flesh and blood. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, 
Jesus says these words. He said, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? What's his answer? Come to me. He said, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I don't think we can overemphasize this word rest. I am resting more spiritually than I have ever rested in my entire life. Why? Because grace and rest go together. And the more you understand grace, the more you're going to rest. The more you understand rest, the more you're going to manifest grace. He said, I'm going to show you how to take a real rest. He said, religion didn't do it for you, did it? You got burned out. You got bummed out on religion. He said, get away with me and you'll recover your life. And he says, I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. And here's these wonderful words. He says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. He said, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. God has given us the Holy Spirit. He is the one that is burning bright on the inside of us with power. Listen to me carefully. You are not powerless. Do not think you are. Do not walk around like you think you are. No, we are not powerless. We have all power living on the inside of us. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 2, what do you think? He told those disciples, you go stay in that upper room. And he said, you stay there until the Holy Spirit comes. And when he comes, he said, I will endue you with power from on high. That is exousia. That is dunamis. It means the wonderful privilege, wonderful working power of God. And what does that power look like? Is that power to run around with a big S on our chest and show and flex our muscles? No. It's the power to live a grace-filled life. It's the power to say no to sin. It's a power to live free from shame and guilt and fear and condemnation because grace is holding hands with rest and rest is holding hands with grace. Man, come on folks. I'm serious, man. God says, I'm giving you power. Oh, you know, there's so many people walk around like they ain't got no power. They're always worried about stuff. Jesus said, that's going to burn you out. You're going to get bummed out. That's just religion. I taught you how to take a real rest. How did I do that? I told you, look at me. Watch me. Watch the way I do it. Let me be your mentor. Let me be your savior. Let me be your guide. Watch how I do it because I always do it right. I never mess up. I never flub it. I never have to do a do-over. I never have to do it a second time. I do it right the first time. So if you'll watch me, if you'll listen to me, listen to my words, watch what I do, listen to how I pray. He said, do that. And he said, you're going to do it too. You're going to watch this grace. You're going to watch this power manifest in your life. Am I in the Word? In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Jesus said these words. He said, But as many as received him, to them gave he power. That word power is not the same power that you run around just doing a whole bunch of miracles with. Yeah, we got that power too. But this power means ability. Exclusia. It means the privilege. It means the honor. It means this is what we carry. We carry this mantle of Jesus' power. You know what it looks like more than not? Grace. It manifests in the way of graciousness and goodness and kindness and love. 
He said, but as many as received him. Has anybody received him in here? Come on. Oh yeah, amen. As many as received him, okay, then that means to them, he said, gave he the power to become sons of God, even unto them which believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And verse 14, it says, and the word was made flesh. When was he made flesh? When he came as a baby. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Watch what he was full of, grace and truth. That government that was on his shoulders that the Bible prophesied was on him as a baby. The Bible just says he grew into it. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in grace with God and men, the Bible says. We have a flame of grace on the inside of us that Jesus has given us the authority to carry. He's given you the privilege, the ability, the excusia power, the authority to carry. Friends, that was what was hidden in the root word sarah for government. It's the Hebrew letters sin, resh, and hey. It's the flame of the authority of grace. So, I mean, when we go back and we reread Isaiah chapter 9, we go, the government's going to be on his shoulder. I mean, we don't even like the word government. Anybody like the word government? Not especially this time of the year. You definitely won't like them on April 15th. We don't like that word government. So when you say, man, the, what do you mean the government's going to be on your shoulders? Well, wait a minute. What kind of government were we under before Jesus came? We are under government of Ten Commandments, a government of law. And Jesus said... There's a new government coming. It's going to be a government of grace. And guess what about this grace? It has no expiration on it. It has no end to it. It goes on forever and ever, and it justifies us. It gives us righteousness. It's the flame of the authority of grace. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us are these. There are no lines that Jesus has drawn that he says he will love us unless. No, he loves us unto. <laughs> he will be merciful to us unless. No, he will be merciful to us in spite. He will dispense grace unless. No, he will dispense grace unto. Jesus, the Bible says, was committed unto death, even the death of the cross so that he could take away our sins once for all, and so that he could slip the government of grace over our hearts. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I have one big crescendo echoing from my heart, and that is just simply, Father, I am absolutely committed to the grace of God. Committed to the grace of God. So, Father, I want to thank you for this wonderful grace that you declared through the prophet Isaiah has no end to it. A government, a mantle, a covenant, even better, that you have slipped over us, that justifies us, that declares that we're righteous, that declares that we're forever forgiven. I want to thank you that when we think about Jesus coming to earth, we think about Jesus coming as a baby, but he didn't stay a baby. He grew in wisdom and in stature and favor. The same exact way we're growing right now in grace, in wisdom and in stature 
and in grace and favor among you, Daddy, and among men. So I want to thank you for that, Father. I want to thank you at this time that we call Christmas. We think about this awesome gift that you gave us, the gift of your son. The Bible calls him your only son. I want to thank you, Father. He was your only son. But when he shed his blood on the cross, we became sons and daughters of the Most High. So we are your sons and daughters as well, Daddy. And I want to thank you for that, Father. I want to thank you, Father, this time of the year as we give, and we give to those that cannot always give back. I want to thank you, Father. That's exactly what grace does. Grace reaches out and says, I give in spite of what you can give to me. That is the spirit of Christmas, and that is the spirit of giving. In Jesus' name, amen.